Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is really getting into fast fashion conspiracy theories. We've got a lot of them. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda. Today's episode is part two of our three-part series with Danny of Picnic. Before starting her own brand, she was a sweater designer for several major fast fashion retailers, so she's definitely an expert. Today, we're going to talk about all kinds of things. <laughs> what it's like to be a sweater designer in fast fashion, how retailers somehow manage to sell us the same thing over and over and we keep buying it, <laughs> and how fast fashion profits more by promoting and sort of perpetuating some trends over others. See, I told you there would be some conspiracy theories. <laughs> One thing we touch on is this quandary. Are fast fashion retailers just making crappy clothes by accident or is it by design? So we'll buy new clothes more often because, you know, they're falling apart faster. That also sounds like a real conspiracy theory, doesn't it? But this idea of creating something that doesn't last just so you can sell more, well, that's an idea that already exists and it's been practiced by other industries since at least the 1930s. It's called planned obsolescence. Okay, well, that sounds pretty fancy, but what is it? I'm about to quote Wikipedia here. Planned obsolescence, also called built-in obsolescence or premature obsolescence, is a policy of planning or designing a product with an artificially limited useful life so that it becomes obsolete. And that can mean unfashionable or no longer functional after a certain period of time. Okay, wait a minute. This is starting to sound like something we talk about a lot on here, isn't it? Well, the rationale behind the strategy is to generate long-term sales volume by reducing the time between repeat purchases. It can also be described as the deliberate shortening of a lifespan of a product to force consumers to purchase replacements. Thanks, Wikipedia. So based on what we just heard, planned obsolescence is definitely not sustainable, right? It completely goes against our approach of buying less, making it last, using it longer, because it's sort of out of our control. And you know what? It's all around us. For example, car makers launch new cars every single year because cars reach a point where fixing them is more expensive than buying a new one. We've all been there or know someone who has been. And of course, there's the trendiness of cars that make consumers want a new one when their current car is perfectly fine. I mean, think about all those car commercials with like driving along the beach or maybe through the desert. And, you know, in the past couple of decades, they've started licensing really cool music. I mean, it almost gets into my head. You know, I'm like, do I need a Kia Rio? I don't know. In its own weird way, cars have a fast fashion problem, right? What about products with irreplaceable batteries, or at least batteries that are really expensive to replace? I'm looking at you, Apple. In many cases, it becomes easier to just buy a new iPhone rather than replace the battery in the one you have or deal with all the nonsense and technical problems that arise as your phone slows down. I, mean, I just went through that. I'm the kind of person who tries to avoid upgrading my phone for as long as humanly possible. And it reaches a point where I'm doing all kinds of crazy workarounds and deleting apps just so I can take one photo. <laughs> you, you know, if, if you're like that, you know what I'm talking about. 
And then there are light bulbs, which are one of the longest running and most successful examples of planned obsolescence. Thomas Edison's original light bulbs still illuminate 100 years after they were made, but that's not profitable for today's manufacturers. Like they would go out of business if we only bought a light bulb every 100 years. By creating bulbs with a short lifespan, you have to keep coming back for more. So light bulbs burn out after a few months or years, kind of depending on the brand and how much you're using them. And, you know, learning this kind of infuriated me because buying light bulbs is one of those things that's just so annoying. And if I only had to do it once in my lifetime, I wouldn't be mad about it. Literally, light bulbs not lasting very long is built into the design of them so that we'll keep coming back for more. It's pretty crazy, right? Once again, planned obsolescence is a major sustainability problem. It goes back to this idea of, you know, our corporate overlords, if you will, being so greedy, they can only look at the sales revenue or the profitability and not at the long-term environmental effects of those sales and profits. That sounded really dark. But once again, I said we were getting to some conspiracy theories here, right? (laughs) Okay, so this is a podcast about fashion, though, right? So how, how does fast fashion execute this idea of planned obsolescence? Well, they do it in two major ways. First, there's the quality. And you were expecting that, right? I mean, this idea of something being low quality and sort of wearing itself out is called functional obsolescence. So light bulbs are an example of that. This means that low quality materials and manufacturing sort of naturally shorten the life of a garment. Fabrics lose their color, plastic zippers break, sweaters snag, jeans rip in the butt, embroidery unravels, mega pilling. Even replacement buttons are challenging to find for these garments. Often one or two will fall off early on and you realize it's kind of impossible to find a perfect match for a replacement. And so this garment ends up in the garbage. And replacing a broken zipper is damn near impossible unless you're a pro, like it's so hard. So you might decide to give up on a dress with a broken zipper rather than take it to the dry cleaner for a repair. So that goes into the trash too. The second way that fast fashion executes planned obsolescence is by bombarding you with new super trendy styles. Fast fashion brands like H&M or Zara put out anywhere between 12 to 24 collections every year. That's at least twice the industry standard. I mean, I don't even know if they could call them collections anymore. It's just more stuff. And as we know, many other retailers and brands are following suit. So this isn't even unusual anymore. It's not the exception It's the rule. The idea behind it is this. Constantly show you new things and suddenly everything you own will already seem obsolete, even if you just bought it. This is called perceived obsolescence. Going back to this idea of a brand new car every year and the advertising behind it, even when your current car is perfectly fine, a brand new car seems so much better. It's the same thing with these clothes. Fast fashion trades on a constant onslaught of, I guess what you might call micro trends. You know, you like blink and you'll miss them. But if you buy into them, you'll probably regret it a few months later. So far, fast fashion has been very successful with creating more and more clothing that becomes obsolete faster and faster. 
it's no surprise then knowing that to know that in the U.S. people buy one item of clothing every five and a half days. So what do we do here? How do we stop buying into products that become obsolete both literally by falling apart and figuratively by no longer seeing cool or fashionable? Well, one, we make more educated decisions about what we buy. We stay away from low-quality fabrics by reading the labels. And we use our eyes. If a sweater seems snaggy, we pass on it. We examine all the trims. We avoid plastic zippers or shoddily attached buttons. Raw hems, seriously. Raw hems are the most obvious form of planned obsolescence that I've ever seen. (laughs) It's like if you bought a car and it already had like the wheels just taped on, (laughs) you know? I don't know a lot about cars, so that might not be a good metaphor. (laughs) Anyway, stay away from raw hems. And also, let's avoid cheap embellishments that we know are going to fall off and be nearly impossible to replace. In most cases, this means that brand new clothing is going to cost a little bit more than the prices at Forever 21 and Fashion Nova, right? But that's okay. Because number two, we make what we buy last. We take care of it by following the laundry instructions, We fix lost buttons and tiny holes on our own. And when a zipper falls apart or a repair seems outside of our skill set, we take it to a professional. You would be surprised how inexpensive this can be. You know, and sometimes it is a little bit more, but it's always worth it. Like, for example, I have this incredible blue suede coat with a gray faux fur collar. It's from the 70s, I think, and I've had it for years the lining was ripping out all over the place. Like it just kept getting worse and worse and I couldn't repair it myself no matter how hard I tried. I took it to a great dry cleaner slash alteration shop and they completely sourced and added a brand new lining that was identical in color to the original, but somehow so much nicer. And yeah, that one cost me like $100, but it added years, probably decades of life to that garment. And it was worth it because this is a coat I have loved since the first time I saw it, and I plan to wear it forever. Once again, pick things that you truly love, not just things that are on sale or you know convenient. And number three, this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> Just stop buying fast fashion. Seriously, guys, let's make this our last few months of 2020 and all of 2021 resolution. Remember, fast fashion isn't always as cheap as it is at Forever 21 or H&M. Some retailers and brands are just making much more profit off the same low-cost product, possibly even made in the same factories, because they have the marketing and brand image to make it feel more valuable. So I would ask yourself this, does this brand stuff stand the test of time? Because if it doesn't, that's an automatic red flag that you're getting into the fast fashion zone. Do they use a lot of synthetic fabrics? Do they launch new stuff all the time? Are there hundreds or even thousands of new styles in their stores at any given time? If you answered yes to any of those questions, then it's definitely fast fashion, no matter what the price tag says, because fast fashion is always about more, more, more all the time, right? Guess what? You don't need it. It's time to break up with fast fashion and support brands that do good things for the world by selling us high quality products, by paying their workers a living wage, and by not filling the world with plastic clothes and toxic chemicals. 
Let's make fast fashion obsolete, eh? Okay, now that we're all fired up, let's get into our conversation with Danny. One thing that I think about a lot, I mean, in a lot of different categories of clothes, but sweaters is one of them where I think about Mm -hmm. it is like, it seems, I know that there's sometimes there's sweater trends of like chunky or fine gauge or maybe like kinds of yarns like marls or space dye, but like overall sweaters don't feel as like trendy in the way that like a Mm. dress could be where there's like 29 different aesthetics it could be at any given time. So And I also feel like sweaters are supposed to be this longer lasting multiple years kind of garment. How do you, I mean, in your experience, how do retailers get people to come back and buy more sweaters when they should have sweaters from last year? Right? That is, I mean, what a great question. (laughs) I feel like going into sweaters I imagine that there were, you know, like a few basic silhouettes and it was all about like the yarn or the stitch or the pattern or whatever that changed. But the number of like silhouettes I've had to design within the world of sweaters is like mind boggling. I, I don't like understand. At the end of the day, <laughs> it's, I mean, I don't even know how I could explain to you because at the end of the day, a sweater is a sweater. It's like, yes, it's different lengths, maybe different widths. Like there's different, slightly different proportions, but like every season I had to reinvent the wheel and that looked different at the, you know, couple of different companies that I worked at. But like at the last company I worked at, it was like, we had to take this same silhouette Mm-hmm. that they had been running for, I mean, one of them, they had been running for like 15 years. I mean, this doesn't surprise me because like, there's just not that many kinds of sweaters, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it's as someone not in the sweater world, I understand why you <laughs> think that, but like inside the world of sweaters, like you think that there's like all of a sudden there's going to be this new silhouette, you know, when we want newness, it's like, but what's the new silhouette? Oh, I hate those kinds of questions. Like, I don't know, a pullover (laughs) versus a tunic. Like what's new? Which one feels new to you? You know, but like when we had this particular like best selling body, so like, you know, the specific proportions of like how wide the shoulder is versus the length versus like, how wide the sweep is and the sleeve, you know, how do we make it different this year from last year, but not so different that it feels different, but new enough that she wants another one, even though she's bought it every year over the past 15 years. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah. what's that sweater look like? Like talk about needing to be creative. It's like, we think about creativity in terms of designing being you know, specifically focused in like these designer or contemporary brands, but like, it's a whole different level of creativity required for redesigning something, but kind of like straddling that line between it feeling new but really you're tricking the customer because it's the same shit she bought last year. Yeah. And I think that's a really good call out. You're tricking the customer, especially when we think about something like sweaters, which you don't wear 
the entire year, right? So right. I don't know when I buy a sweater, my expectation is going to, I'm going to have it for years, right? Yeah. So I would hope if you, so. if every other customer did that, then suddenly no one's going to buy any sweaters. Right. So like, how do you keep selling sweaters, right? Yeah. I'm like, are we banking on that sweater falling apart so that next year she'll need to buy a new one? Because that's disgusting. Well, I would argue that 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 is happening all the time, I'm sure. Absolutely. So it's like a combination of that. And obviously, we're just feeding the customer to believe that, you know, for whatever reason, they need something new every year. They can't be wearing the last season item because that's just, that just simply won't do. You Mm -hmm. know, you need the new one. So it's this gross like literally gross, like disgusting consumerism. That's partially what drove me to leave the, I mean, there's so many levels of why I left the industry in the capacity that I was working within it. But that is, that is definitely a big one. Like that never felt right to me. And the number of units, like the, this feeling of like, as a designer, you were supposed to feel really proud when a buy was being made that was like bigger than any buy in your career or mm-hmm. whatever, like that is supposed to be a source of pride. But yet for me, it was like, I just felt disgust. Like how are that many thousands of the same sweater being made? Like, wait, so you're telling me 50,000 women will be buying this sweater? Like, <laughs> Think about that. For yeah. A second. I mean, like, that's disgusting. And it's crazy because I feel like there's kind of this feeling from people outside the industry that, like, okay, if you hate fast fashion so much, well, then go work for a cooler brand. Uh, no, it's not that easy because wouldn't you know it, the industry is extremely uh, superficial, believe it or not. So if you've been working at, in fast fashion all this time, you think that someone in like a cooler brand is going to hire you? Oh, fuck oh, no. Of course like, not. Even though I feel like I've been like forcefully fitting myself into this mold of being a fast fashion designer and I've never felt comfortable with it. Like ever since I was little, like little, little, I've always wanted to look different from everyone else. I loved the gap, but I remember when I was like 12 and I got this new tankini, tankini, a term that I haven't even said Wow. I mean, I haven't heard that in so long. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember I was so excited about it, but then one of my best friends bought the same one. And that was the moment that I was like, no, no, I can't shop like this anymore. And so like, I've always been that type of person. And yet I've been like forcing myself into the mold of like designing for the people like the anti those people. And yet, if I wanted to get out of the fast fashion industry and work for a brand that was maybe a little bit more innovative, let's be honest, like even Prada knocks off Gucci and vice versa. Mm -hmm. It's just not that easy. Like someone told me like, oh, you should try like working for Ula Johnson. I'm like, 
You think Ula Johnson is going to look at my resume and be like, fuck yeah, let's hire this girl. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, I hate saying that, but it's totally true. And for myself, (laughs) too, like, people are always like, oh, you should try to, like, go into luxury. And I'm like, well, first off, I think luxury is bullshit. But also, I don't have that background. They're not going to hire me. Like, I even, I mean, this makes me laugh, but when I was interviewing at Nasty Gal, which was, like, fast fashion, like, come on, guys. There was concern that my background wasn't premium enough. I mean, wow. Like, come on. <laughs> it's so superficial. What these brands think of themselves is like also so fascinating oh, because like before you start working in the brand, like what you think of who they are is completely misaligned with who they think they are. <laughs> Like this last brand I was working at, like, first of all, I'll be honest, I didn't even know they existed anymore. (laughs) I didn't think they were a brand. When you told me about this place, I too was like, that place is still around. (laughs) Right, exactly. But I think because we live in like bigger cities where, you know, we're not really like mall customers. So we don't see these brands that are like huge in middle America. Like, right. But yeah, but then I go in there and they're like comparing themselves to Zara, H&M, Urban. And I'm like, those brands don't even know you exist. And their customers like are very different, even within the scope of fast fashion. Like there's like very different customers. So it's just fascinating because like you would think these brands would be want to be more in tune with like how they're perceived by their customer base because how can you truly design for them if you don't even know how they see you oh 100 percent, yeah it's very bizarre but it's so across the board I feel like there's a disconnect between who a brand thinks their identity is versus how the customer perceives them 100 percent. i feel like everywhere i've worked we always talk about the aspirational customer so this is like sort of we're supposed to be designing and buying for this person who most likely doesn't shop with us or is a tiny percentage of who shops with us right and so like i worked for a company where i can tell you having worked for them for a long time that their customers really like teenage and college girls and teenage and college boys as well but we were designing for someone and buying for someone who was like 25 to 30, who was like really into art and travel and like, and like cared about like the runway perhaps. Yeah. Like what's happening. Oh, like Celine did this. So it's like, Oh my God. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And I feel like honestly, that was because there was such, it's like, there was a big disconnect between who was doing the buying and designing and who was shopping. And that doesn't mean that you can't buy for someone who's, or design for someone who isn't you, but you have to be really honest about who they yeah. are and put yourself in their head and not, not put yourself in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think this is just, it's like a tale as old as time, this like imaginary, very high-end customer that everyone thinks is their customer. And you're like, no, haven't you ever noticed how many dumb, witty t-shirts we sell? That's who our <laughs> customer is. She wants a dumb ass graphic Exactly. Do, like she doesn't want us to go see what Celine is no. doing and copy that. Like it's way, that's way too edgy for her. She's not going to wear that to school. Like that was something I would talk about a lot. I'd be like, you know, 
seems like a lot of our customers have to go to school and they're like dress codes and stuff there. And so if we were just a little bit more cognizant of that, we could probably sell even more clothes oh, and sure. nobody liked that. Or I've worked in multiple places. To be, I mean, when you work in fast fashion, to be honest, it's like you said, they all have different customers, but all almost all the ones I've worked for have had teenagers as their yeah. customers. Like no matter what, like that's, that's who was really spending the money. And I would be like, we should do something for prom. And like they would like our customer would fucking die right. if we had prom dresses because they'd be so perfect. And it would be like, ew, no, we don't want think people to think this is a store for teenagers. Uh, and it's like, yeah, it, it yeah. is. Yeah. It's like reality check. <laughs> Look who's in your store. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like a nasty gal. I've talked about this before. Like there was this denial that our our customer wanted to go to Coachella or thought festivals were cool. And I was like, what? no, I mean, like, this is what all of our customers are doing right now. Like us not selling festival clothes because we think it's not premium or aspirational is us just leaving money on the table. Precisely. Yeah. So I, I do think that's really, really interesting. It's like, we want to sell as much stuff as we can to these people and trick them into it in every way. But we don't want to be honest about what they really want to buy and who yeah, they are. Absolutely. <sighs> yeah. Once again, that's what leads to all this, like all the brands kind of looking the same yes. and all the waste that happens. Because if everybody's selling the same shit, you have to then sell it the most cheaply. Exactly. Because what, what then makes you want to buy it from Forever 21 versus Zara? The price. If it's the same thing, you know, then it's like... You just want to get the cheaper one. It's right. wild to me. I, I called my mom. Obviously, this was like pre-COVID, but she was shopping in the mall or something in Vancouver. And she was like, I'm in. She's trying to tell me what store she was in. And she was like, wait, hold on. Am I in J. Crew or Club Monaco or Banana Republic? Like, she literally didn't know because they all look the same now. They do There's all no look difference. the same. There's no yeah. It's wild. I mean, I look at images of how Banana Republic used to look. Like they were a freaking safari themed store. Like I've seen I know, pictures I and it's like, it like looks like the Amazon inside. Like so cool. Like everything is so homogenized now and it's so boring it's so boring I kind of like I group brands together now by like the kind of customer and price point they're selling not like their actual aesthetic because there right. is no difference so like in my mind like Banana Republic J Crew, and Club Monaco are the same place right yes. and then I might be like okay Forever 21 and Wet Seal is Wet Seal still around I don't know I like don't think so like you know the but teenager stores yes yeah and you know like then there's places like gap and like i kind of group them with uniqlo but uniqlo is cooler i don't know right. where it's like you get clothes that are basic and yeah i no longer think of any of those brands as having their own identity like it's no. just a different aged customer or something they're they're selling to not like an idea and i feel like that has like i said led to this like everything has to be a deal because yeah i mean i mean i'm gonna be honest when i go to the grocery store if i have to choose between like a brand of pasta, I'm going to go with whatever's on sale. You know, like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not like, mm, I have a really hard loyalty to Barilla or something, right, you know? Right. <laughs> it basically perfectly personifies everything we've talked to up until this point, because it's like, this is what's going on in the inside. 
And this is what ends up happening on, on its face Mm -hmm. because of that. So all this copying, all this like remaking the same stuff, all of that results in just across the board homogenization of everything. Totally. And I think in this COVID era, until it ends, whenever that is, we're going to see this being even more extreme because like I see the industry emails. You've seen them too. Mm. Everybody's like, it's all about sweatpants and leggings and hoodies and being comfy. And so that's all anyone's buying. And they're not even differentiating in terms of like brand DNA or this like aesthetic. It's just like everyone's got the same stuff. And once again, a great time to cure yourself of buying stuff all the time. (laughs) Yeah. But then it's hard. Like that's why some, some companies are actually not doing super poorly also because like, let's be honest, people buy things to make them happy, to fill a hole. I know. So it's like, you know, you're sitting at home and like, you're like sad and depressed and you just want to buy something to make yourself feel better. It's true. And like, I can't totally knock that because like I experienced that too. However, I try and make better choices by like scrolling Poshmark endlessly. And I'm like, maybe if I have to buy something, like at least it's secondhand and I'm buying from someone who's like trying to get rid of stuff or like, you know, selling vintage or like, you know, as we talk about a little bit later on, buying something handmade or upcycled, you know, like, and that that feels good through and through, you know? Totally. So I'm hoping that some people are starting to make those decisions versus just like filling their cart because there's like a volcanic sale. (laughs) Volcanic sale. (laughs) Volcanic doorbuster. I don't know if these are terms that you used, but (laughs) I am. Those are like, I've never heard volcanic, but I love it. And it, makes me I think that was like maybe specifically for January sales mm. was like volcanic month or something wow I don't know some of these terms just like went over my head and I was like okay a sale is a sale <laughs> we're just trying to get rid of stuff but I do think that uh the sales stuff is a I mean I talk about this a lot but mm. the industry has shifted so much that sale events are like really where companies make their money and so yeah like I've been in so many meetings where we're like trying to get our sale to start a couple days before everyone else's in this hope of getting their wallet before someone else does I mean that is like the bottom line like when you as a customer want to know what these companies are thinking about in terms of you they're thinking about how much money they can get out of you period you know 100 so it would be like okay well Everybody is going to start their after Christmas sale on the day after Christmas. I mean, that's what we come to think of that as, right? So let's start ours on Christmas Eve. And we did that and it was successful. But then the next year, other people were catching on to that too. So then it was like, okay, let's start our sale the weekend before Christmas. Okay, let's just start it in the middle of December. Like these volcanic sale events are just getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And they're literally what they're doing is just training the customer to never buy anything at full price. Even if full price is cheap. It's like, I know there's definitely like this disgusting, like race to the bottom that like eventually has to fall out because you, there's going to get to a point where you can't sell anything for cheaper, right? So who's going to win once we get to that point? We're seeing it happen now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really, really interesting to think about. Like there has to be a bottom there. Yeah. Where is it? I mean, 
we're so close to it right now anyway. When I see the cost of things versus the retail prices and know that those retail prices are now fake, right? for sure. I tell everyone this. If you have to buy something new, do not buy it full price. I mean, unless it's from a cool, nice brand that's like sustainable and doing good things. That's totally different. When I talk about these like big retailers, Mm -hmm. you are so foolish to buy anything at full price because the value of it is so much lower. Right. Absolutely. It's all just, it's all just trickery. So yes, let's talk about what it's like to be a sweater designer because it's, it's fascinating to me because it is so different than other categories of clothing. So tell me a little bit about like the process for designing and developing a sweater. I know in like the best case scenario, yarn goods have much longer lead time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it's not only just the yarn goods, but it's the process itself that's longer. Mm-hmm. So the challenge I've had throughout my career is basically explaining this to everyone around me who's not <laughs> a sweater designer. Like, right, no joke, right. That's been the challenge because what that means is that you need to start things before everyone else does. So before the denim designer, before the cut and sew knits, before the wovens, you need to start developing your yarn strategy. And mm-hmm. if if you want to decide your yarns and your stitches, then, hey, it would be helpful to know what the concept is. And, you know, I've had so many conversations over the years because like, you know, certain concept teams or like design directors who will say like, but it doesn't really matter what the concept is for sweaters. It's like, okay, so just like design a bunch of random stuff all right, like, it sounds fun. Um, <laughs> cool, let's get to work. Uh, and then as soon as the concept comes together, everything you've developed mm, doesn't really fit in because you've designed all this chenille, but really we're doing kind of more of this like boho natural oh. yarns. So like, I don't know, we're going to have to start over. I've lived cool. this life. Okay. I, I know yeah. these stories, yeah. Oh my God, it's it gets exhausting. But yeah, so ideally we start with the concept just like every other designer needs some sort of concept to work from and then you start developing yarn and then with those yarns you're developing like I said in a way you're developing the fabric so that's why you kind of need to pad this extra step in there and so again ideally (laughs) you start developing stitches so once you've determined what your yarns are you start to you know, maybe work with your factories to send you stitch options, shop vintage is my preference, but oftentimes it's Mm -hmm. like shopping the market. So whether that's like you said, aspirational, so going to like higher end and seeing what they're doing or also, but then combined with like the competitive landscape. So then you kind of ask your factory to develop a knit down or like essentially a fabric swatch using this yarn but in this stitch and then you get the more you develop at this time the better set you are because it's less expensive it's less labor intensive for your factories Mm -hmm. to be just developing knit downs than for them to be developing entire samples that end up dropping so the more like attention you put into this development phase in sweaters the better because ultimately 
it will be less strain on your factory and therefore less strain on the company wallet if you really take special care at this stage. But at the end of the day, I say ideally because everything's going to change. It doesn't really matter. So I say ideally, Mm -hmm. but then also it doesn't fucking matter. Nothing matters. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't. Based on my experience, there's always way too many cooks in the kitchen. Oh my God. Don't even get me started. I know. Even your best laid plans are going to fall apart. So what like I mean by that, if you haven't lived it, is like you sit down with your team, your boss, you guys come up with a plan, you design it, you bring it to the meeting and you show your sketches or whatever to buying and they pick some things but then maybe there's going to be another meeting where a different person who oversees merchandising comes in and like changes everything but then another person from leadership is going to come in and be like actually i think all the sweaters should be purple it's shocking when you think about how fast this product is moving that it will change so many times like where's the breaking point there you know (laughs) yeah when is enough enough like how far through the process can we get before we can say no? Dude, I know. Because from my experience, you can be like, like, there's no limit. There is no limit to how far through you can be with something before something's canceled or changed. Again, talk about like what made me decide to leave the industry. It was like kind of just like exhaustion (laughs) because like I have zero voice. Like at what point will I get in this stage that I can actually make a difference. Like I didn't feel that was going to be anytime soon. You just have to keep changing when you're asked to change things. And there's no respect for your time or your effort. There's no respect for your factory's time or effort. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's so, so depressing. It is. It is. I mean, it's like you go to these meetings Everybody seems to sign off on something and you're like, okay, this is what we're going to buy. And then like, there's all these other side meetings where it changes again. And like you're three samples deep and the whole assortment changes. And once again, this is all happening when we're also just working on these like shorter and shorter lead times in the first place. So it's like, yeah, so many people are doing so much extra work and working all the time. Like it's really hard to have a work-life balance when you work in any of these fast fashion brands because- most of the time you're just spinning your wheels. It's really, oh my God, really yes. hard. Wheel spinning is like just the best way to put it. Another element of like why I wanted to go out on my own, whatever capacity that that could have looked at, like, I didn't really know at the time when I left for sure. A part of it was just like, I feel like I'm wasting so much time and energy on things that never come to fruition Mm -hmm. or also just like the idea of like sitting at your desk, even when there's very little work to be done. Like for the most part, I feel like I was constantly working and like staying late and like just busting my ass to like get stuff done. But then there were also like weeks where like there was nothing to work on and I like still had to sit there. You know what I mean? And it just felt like, what am I doing with my time? Like someone's paying me. That's rad. But like I could be using my time so much better. Like, I don't know, just like 
bad uses of time, basically. Well, and I feel like there's been, this has been getting worse and worse with time, this like, and this probably applies to other industries too, not just fashion, this idea of like, there no longer being a separation between your work and your personal life. So like, not only should you be spending all of your emotional creative energy at work and not questioning it, even if you don't have anything to do that day, you should also be like, posting about your job on social media and like sharing promo codes and posting editorial content and you know showing stuff you bought from this place and it's just like I hate a situation in which you have to drink the Kool-Aid oh my god yeah this was something that I would always think of like in the early aughts and later when I was living in Portland people who worked at Nike like they were so in deep on the Nike culture that they would post stuff on Facebook like press releases from Nike and I was like why are you doing that? Right. Yeah, so weird. But it's even more widespread now. Like even the last yeah. place I worked, people are still sharing editorial content on Instagram all the time. And I'm like, are you being so asked funny. to do that? Do you feel the pressure to do that? I mean, I understand I, like, that. I never even wore the thing at the last brand I worked at. I don't think I bought maybe like five things in the three and a half years I worked there. I I never wanted to wear one of the sweaters I bought. God, that is telling. I mean, that is telling. Which is like, yeah. Like I own a few from like my career. Like I have a box of like sweaters that I designed that I'm like really proud of. And I don't want to wear them because I just want to like, they're like keepsakes for me. But I also just don't want to wear them. I actually hate synthetic fibers, which should sound weird because like most people you would think most people would say I prefer natural fibers but like the reality is that Americans actually don't especially when it comes to sweaters talking about like how much we value content so like wool versus acrylic poly whatever it is like you think that you look at a tag that says wool and you'd be like oh that's better quality that feels better But the reality is the American consumer actually hates wool. Even 5% wool, they will be complaining about how itchy it is. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I, like I said before, I'm kind of like a purist when it comes to a sweater. So like, give me something scratchy that like feels like I'm wearing something. You know what (laughs) I mean? But like the consumer really likes something like terms we use or like, soapy or just like mm. like we use this term yummy that like means nothing oh <laughs> I hate that term I was just about to say yeah. something about that if I have to hear another grown as woman describe a fabric or yarn as yummy I mean it's one reason I don't think I can ever go back to like a yeah. big fashion company yeah. ever it's like, again. Just that feels really yummy. It's like, okay uh. that's not that's not that doesn't have real meaning you know, like that's, that's, that's not a real but phrase. I do think you're speaking to a phenomenon that has happened in the industry, which is ironic, I will say, because now we buy so much stuff online. But when we when we're in meetings now, we don't talk about the content mm. of the fabric or the yarn. It's always the about how feel, it yeah. feels. Always, always like it's yummy, it's cozy, it's soft, it's comfy, yeah. it's airy, like whatever. We never, ever talk about like it's 95% polyester or anything like that. It's made out of plastic. Right. It's almost like 
we know from working in the industry that hand feel doesn't at all on any level speak to the quality or the longevity of the fabric, right? For sure. It doesn't speak to the cost of that fabric yeah. either. So sometimes I'm, I would be in a meeting and I'd be like, I wonder how much that fabric even costs. Yeah. Like how much is this garment going to cost? I can't figure it out because I don't, there no one's saying what the content is. Like a cashmere sweater is going to have a way different price point than an acrylic, but no one's even mm-hmm. speaking to that. Like I have no idea until I get the price sheet. And I yeah. think that like, that's because customers have been sort of shielded from that information as well too. And they don't know what they're missing out on or what they're getting. I, I always think of that horrible, this wouldn't be in a category mm-hmm. you've designed. I don't think, I think this is like strictly a cut and sew like tees and sweatshirts kind of thing, but that like brushed fabrication, which is like, you know what I'm talking about? It's like a weird. Yeah. I mean, you'd be shocked, but I actually have had to design oh. it. Like we, it's, it's been called different things at different brands I've worked at, but like snit, swit, patchy, like uh-huh. these are weird terms that basically like, I guess the idea is that they think that because the consumer maybe sees it as a sweater because it's like a little bit thicker mm-hmm. than like a t-shirt, but it's like definitely finer than a sweater because it isn't a sweater, but because the customer kind of perceives it as a sweater, perhaps they think that the sweater designer should be designing it. But like when it comes down to it, it's designed just the same. It's made the same way as any cut and Mm -hmm. sew. So like there's no reason why a sweater designer should be designing that. That Hachi fabric. I mean, you know it when you see it, it always has like a weird slick hand feel I think and it snags yeah. it looks like don't get too close to yeah. a flame that's what when I see it I'm like be careful to not get too close to a fire source when you're wearing or rub up against anything because it's going to snag yeah. 1000 times immediately yes. the care of I don't even know how you care for it because it's so fragile and mm-hmm. it's so cheap I mean it's like instant trash when you buy it yeah. The brushed fabrication is sort of similar and they do something where they like wash it and make it fluffy on top, but it's still synthetic. Right. Once again, totally will mm-hmm. melt. It, it won't snag in the same way because it's like fluffed up or something, but that stuff will right. pill like the first time you wear it. And oh my it's God. so yes. disgusting. It doesn't breathe like a more natural fiber would. And once again, people buy, I mean, Everywhere I've worked, brushed and hachi, they sell like mm-hmm. hotcakes because they drape and they yeah. feel nice until you wear them. And by then yeah. it's too late. Wear them or wash yeah. them once. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I will say that we did at the last brand I worked at that I feel like if I ever continued, you know, went back into the same scope of design, I would definitely try and push doing is we wore tested like any yarns that were going to be a relatively big order like more than one style using that yarn we would wear test it and we Mm -hmm. would get it in a size run too so it wouldn't just be wear tested on one body it would be the range because like you know depending on the size and shape of your body like clothes wear differently we know this from like the lululemon debacle with like (laughs) remember like a horrible chip wilson saying things about like the size of person who should be wearing their leggings and that's why it was sheer in the bomb or something like that gross yeah that was one good thing we did because we would learn things about the yarn from doing that so after one wear it got like pilling under the arms or something we wouldn't proceed with that yarn so 
it's interesting because like we wanted the same customer to be buying the same thing year after year, yet we were doing things in hopes that items she was buying would last. So it's it's interesting. I feel like they didn't really mm-hmm. have it figured out because that that's kind of a contradiction. I mean, that is interesting. I do think there are some retailers who are capitalizing on the idea that you'll just want something new and you won't care if you have 50 perfectly good sweaters. And then there are others who are like, True. make it as crappy as possible. So you're forced into buying more. And, and there's a mix in there too. I mean, yeah. obviously like the psychology of why we buy things is so complicated. And yes, there's so many layers to it. Right, right. And like, sometimes you just buy stuff because it makes you feel good. Like it has nothing to do with need or like, you know, needing to replace something even. It's yeah. just like, I want to feel good. Yeah. So this is a conversation I like to have with everybody who works in any element of the industry in terms of like designing and developing product. How do you cut costs on a sweater? Because I know you don't have as many options as you might with like a blouse or a t-shirt where you mm-hmm. could like take off details or like, mm-hmm. you know, make it smaller or something. If buying or production comes back to you and says a sweater is coming mm-hmm. in too expensive, which is something I'm sure you've experienced. What do you do? How do you change yeah, it? This happens all the time, as you can imagine. And it really depends on the circumstance. There's different things that can be done. You know, we look at the price breakdown and, and where that inflated price is coming from. So, you know, it could be Mm -hmm. the yarn. What's very unique to sweaters or any knitted garment is that you're not paying for the fabric by yard. You are paying for the yarn consumption by weight, which is like hard to Mm -hmm. wrap your head around, I think. So what's funny is that from the initial stages, when we're looking at yarn, we're thinking about the weight of the yarn. So things like cotton can be pricier Mm -hmm. because it's heavier. Wow, that's so interesting. I think that's a really important distinction that in other garments, you would just change out the fabric, find a cheaper fabric, right? You have to think about it differently with sweaters. But what's even more interesting than that is, and I know you've talked about this in another episode, is the duty rate. Mm -hmm. So yes, cotton may be heavier, but the duties on cotton are better. Mm -hmm. So if we can find a way to make this yarn at least 50% cotton, but then the rest of the content of the yarn is like really light ass acrylic, then we can maybe like find a balance. So it's super confusing. And it's why like production teams and understanding the like full scope of sweaters is so like interesting and varied. There's so many levels to it. So you may say like, oh, this yarn is really heavy, but yet if we add a little bit more cotton, the duty will be lower. So yes, it'll be slightly heavier, but we're going to cut down on the duty rate. So it's just like extremely nuanced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So weight is like a big thing. And often if you're like really trying to cut costs, like, and this is where I go back to like the initial stages of developing a fabric, why it's so important because 
but also doesn't matter because you might get to this point and decide you need to loosen the tension so it's cheaper. That was going to be my next question, if that was an option. Depending on where you are in the stage of the garment, like it might feel like, oh, we'll just do this tiny thing. We're going to loosen the tension. But what you're really doing is starting from scratch because you've loosened the Mm -hmm. tension and now those three fit samples you got are null. It doesn't matter because you're starting over and most people aren't really looking at it that way. And that's, what's really frustrating. Cause I'm like, Oh, we're okay. Like starting this over. It's like, no, no, no. We fit it like three times. It's like, yeah, but we're basically switching out the fabric by loosening the tension. Right. You are starting all over again. Yep, exactly. So it's fascinating. It seems like then if you were shopping at a fast fashion retailer, this could be why you would get a sweater that had a strange fit. Like maybe they didn't start over, they changed it and then they were like, just run with it. Because I've definitely bought sweaters where like the sleeves were like six inches too long. You know what I mean? Like something really, really weird or it like lost its shape. Because sweaters grow, that's another term that you you know in like the sweater world is like the growth of a sweater. So when I talk about wear tests, we're also looking at how much like we measure the garment first. And like they, you might wear it after one day and it's grown three inches. Yeah. But that's something you need to know because then when you're fitting it, you might err on the side of slightly shorter knowing that even though sweaters shouldn't be hung, we know this sweater is going to be hung in the store. And if it's grown three inches just in the time that it's been on the rack for one day, then like, you know, it's funny because we would make sure when we received a fit sample, we wouldn't hang it up. It's like, but why? Because it'll customer's stretch gonna, out. Yeah. Right. But the customer's going to buy it after it's been hanging. I know. So it might be more accurate. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, totally. Yeah. I think that's a really valid call out. So another thing I've experienced in in times when I've been buying sweaters as a buyer is going into the sample review and every single sweater hanging on the wall is being cropped just to cut down on cost. So, oh my god, I, I yeah, yeah, you you know how it goes. I call this out more for, for sure. people who are listening because if you've ever gone to a store and been like, why are all the sweaters cropped? This is exactly why. It's trying to hit a price point. I wonder if this is why the high-rise jean trend has gone on for so long. I think so. Well, and why <laughs> is why are crop tops still going? I yeah. mean, like it's been going exactly. on for a long time. Yeah. It's like you think it's because it's cute, but maybe it's just because the fashion industry wants to be able to sell you something that's using less fabric because it's cheaper. Oh, 100%. I mean, I have been in so many meetings where it's been like, we're cropping it because it's going to take down the cost a dollar, like period. It's the only way we're going to hit our margin target. And when you start to think about that, you realize that there are a lot of trends out there that have been highly profitable for retailers because they're cheaper. So like cropped Mm -hmm. being a really good example. When I think about jeggings, Jeggings oh, yeah. are so cheap to make. It's just stretchy fabric. It's not right. even high quality fabric. And you don't have to worry so much about the fit. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you're so you're not paying all that for all these fittings and additional technical design and people aren't going to return them. So that saves you money too. I mean, same thing with leggings, you know, non-technical yeah. leggings. Once again, everybody needing to wear leggings and sweatpants right now is making everything more profitable for retailers. Oh yeah, for sure. Just the general trend of things not needing to be like 
structured and fitting and tailored, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's multiple reasons for that. Like, yes, it's more comfortable to wear something stretchy, but it's also much easier to just kind of like bang those things out and sell them for cheap because, you know, they can fit a range of bodies easier than something tailored. 100%. And there are like trends I've seen in my career that have made things cheaper for retailers. Like how about how all of a sudden like super sheer dresses were like a thing and they're still going? Well, that's great if you're a fast fashion retailer because you don't have to pay to line it. Right. You know, you just cut off a ton of costs right there. Exactly. I think back to when we were kids and all jeans came with a belt. (laughs) Oh right? God, like, remember? Yeah. But, like, that's, like, yeah. not a trend anymore. And that saves them yeah. money on making belts. They were also, like, the grossest belts ever, always. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. They were yeah. just future garbage. I'm glad that it went away. But once again, that saved them yeah, some money, sure. you know? There were eras of shoulder pads. Mm-hmm. They went away. There's one less thing you have to buy and get someone exactly. to sew in. And so these are all things to think about that we sometimes think of things as being a trend, but they're sort of being forced at us because they're cheap. Yeah. It's not an accident. Yeah. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. Like I even think there are certain retailers right now who only sell the world's shortest dresses (laughs) and like nothing that is remotely just a little bit more butt covering and like maybe a couple of maxis, but that's it. And once again, that's because it's way cheaper to take four inches off of a dress. And if nobody's going to step up and say like, Hey, I would just like my butt cheeks to be fully covered, then they're going to keep selling them. Yeah, for sure. So you said something that I thought it like, I I can't explain it, but like really made me think you said like, there's no such thing as machine crochet. So like, Uh, yes, this blew my mind because there's so much cheap crochet clothing out there, especially at festival time. Like, what do you, what's going on there? So I think it's really interesting because the term crochet means something very specific Mm -hmm. when we're talking about like technically what it means it's like it's a very different way of using yarn to create fabric than knitting it's like using one hook basically so I think what's confusing is to the consumer they might think of something as crochet that isn't really it's actually technically knitted but maybe it just has a look and feel of something mm-hmm. crochet. Mm-hmm. And I've seen really, really good knit things that feel like crochet and at first glance would fool me. But I think there are certain things that you will never be able to do by knitting um, that are very specifically meant for crocheting. So anything where it's kind of like circular in nature, like it's going mm-hmm. in a spiral or something, that's something that you could only be, could only be done by crochet um, and not by knitting. So, so I mean, a person would be doing it, like not a machine. Yes. Right? So that's the interesting element to that is that you, there's no, you know, back in like the turn of the last century, they developed knitting from being two needles into something that be, can be done on a machine, right? So mm-hmm. the industrialization of knitting. Crochet, however, you just can't reproduce that technique into something done by machine. So anytime you see something that's really crochet, it was done by hand. 
So we talked before about like when I would get a huge order of something I designed like hundreds of thousands of units or tens of thousands of units. And, you know, I'm supposed to be excited. What about when I design something that's crocheted that like a huge order is placed against? Like when that happened the first time, like my stomach went in flip-flops, whatever. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I designed something that was hand crocheted and there was like, Uh I mean, a 12,000 unit buy. Um, which I saw much bigger numbers later on in my career. But that to me, that's I was like, wait, lot. that's a fuck ton. 12,000 <laughs> of these hand crocheted little tank tops. Oh my God. I know. Who's and making I mean- those? How fast? And that tank top was had to retail for $39. That meant that was the other thing I was yeah, gonna say. That meant it had to land the in the US at like, I don't know, somewhere between like ten to twelve dollars. I would say if that happens in 2020, we're looking at eight dollars because the margin targets oh, have gotten God. so high. And I mean, like the when I think about little crochet tank tops, they are so ubiquitous on fast fashion sites in the spring. Like and they're yeah. all $38 is like an expensive one. And so it's nauseating yeah. to think about. And they're just, they only get worn once. How much does the person get paid to crochet? I mean, I just, I have so many questions. Like right? nothing. Like when you look at how much that, whatever it is, $9 to $12, like what that encompasses. And you've done some really great breakdowns of what that needs to encompass. Like, the amount that's actually for the labor that went into making that garment, it's crazy. No, it's super crazy. And I can say I've been on the other side as the buyer where I've been like, this needs to come down $5. You know, we got to hit this margin. We got to hit this price point. And to think about that now, knowing that, you know, in the first place, only about one to 3% of the cost of any garment is wages for the workers. I mean, that's already disgusting. And then to be like, can we take five more dollars off of that? I mean, for a person to sit down and crochet that by hand just blows my mind. I guess what I'm saying is like, we tend to think of crochet stuff as this like novelty, almost disposable thing. And people buy tons of these like crochet bra tops and tank tops every year to wear for a very short window of time. Like that's something that needs to end now, like immediately. If there's one takeaway you get from this episode, stop buying cheap crochet stuff. Just don't do it. Buy it from someone on Etsy who's like actually making it by hand, but understand you're going to pay them for it. Like they're going to get paid for the time that they put into it. Right. Right. I mean, everybody's time has a value or make it yourself yeah Buy a pattern on it see and figure out how to crochet yourself. and realize once and for all the true value of crochet and never oh, buy yeah. a 38 dollar top by again. doing it yourself you yeah. will get that understand i mean that's how i feel when i like knit a hat or something i'm like i can't believe you can go buy a hat for like five dollars <laughs> like yeah and it's what's crazy is to make it yourself actually it's more expensive, it's more expensive yeah, yeah because you have to like quite a bit more expensive because Mm -hmm. just purchasing the yarn alone, like, you know, someone contacted me the other day and knowing that I was a knitwear designer, not knowing that I don't actually hand make sweaters, (laughs) asked me if I would 
make them a sweater and they told me their budget. And basically I had to tell them like, first of all, I don't really make sweaters, but thank you for thinking of me. But that's going to cover the cost of the yarn. If we're using, you know, actual alpaca or something, which, you know, I wouldn't use something that wasn't sustainably and consciously produced. So like, I, I totally appreciate the sentiment of wanting to buy something handmade, right. but if that's truly what you want to do, you unfortunately have to broaden your budget a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, hold on to it for a long time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Buy this sweater for, for you to wear for the next several years. As it, as it should be. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hey, it's Amanda. Thanks again to Danny for literally spending hours recording with me. She'll be back for one final installment, number three, next week. Once again, you should check out her line, Picnic. She just launched some amazing sweatshirts with these like cool Patrick graphics made from vintage towels. They're so rad. I'll share her info in the show notes so you can see it for yourself. I also just wanted to take a moment to remind you to make a voting plan. Okay, well, why did I say make a voting plan instead of register to vote? Because voting is a little bit more complicated this year and way more important than ever. Like that's the biggest understatement ever. If I have to tell you why voting is super important this year, then you might be listening to the wrong podcast. But seriously, there is so much on the line right now, so we have to get it right. You know, you might think you have a plan in place for voting, but it doesn't hurt to double check. For example, the voting site in my neighborhood was changed, and I only noticed because there was a flyer stapled to a telephone pole near my house. If I hadn't seen that, I would have totally gone to the wrong place on election day. Okay, well, I'm not suggesting you go check out all the telephone poles and bulletin boards in your neighborhood. Instead, you can go to votesaveamerica.com, and I'll share the link in the show notes as well, so don't worry if you missed what I just said. <laughs> anyway, you go to that site, you type in your address, and boom, it will show you all of the details for voting by mail in your state, and it will search for the polling place in your neighborhood. I mean, like, fuck yeah, like, let's make it easy, because strangely, it's so hard, <laughs> So you have to plan this. Like you can't do this the day of or even the day before. You have to know that in-person voting is going to take some time because there may be a very long wait. Obviously, there's going to be social distancing measures in place, I hope. So plan your schedule around that. Bring water and snacks for the wait. Wear warm clothes and comfortable shoes. Wear a mask and, you know what, bring a buddy who lives in your neighborhood to pass the time. Maybe bring a deck of cards. I don't know. I sound like a mom here, but seriously, guys, we got to get through this. We can't give up. We got to cast our vote. It means so much this year. There is so much at stake right now. I literally lose sleep worrying about this election every single night. Virtually every person in this country has something to lose with the outcome of this election. So let's vote the assholes out. Go make your plan. Get ready to do this. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I don't know, you might even want to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Just, just saying. 
and please share with your friends. This is how we end fast fashion, by bringing on more and more people. Thanks to everyone who shares our content on Instagram and recommends Close Horse to their friends and coworkers. Seriously, all caps, thank you. Thank you. And oh yeah, you'll find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. We're on Twitter, but like, to be honest, I never use it. Do you have an episode suggestion, need advice, maybe have a burning question about the industry? You can reach out via email at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or just DM me on Instagram. I'm pretty fast with the responses. Also, if you can't get enough of podcasts during quarantine, which I know I can't, then check out our sister podcast, The Department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, brands, our weird lives, and so on. And Kim's also a career buyer, so we have a lot to talk about. This week's episode is about normalizing women's bodies. I know, like, why should we have to normalize that? But guess what? We need to. Influencers who Photoshop themselves into weird, skinny mutants and teenage boys perming their hair. I mean, among other things. There's a lot there. So check it out. And... Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for music and audio support. He actually does the music for the department as well, if you can't get enough of his work. All right, till the next episode. Bye. (laughs) 